0: An unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect Dharma is rarely met with, even in a hundred thousand million Kalpas. Having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept, I vow to taste the truths of the Tathagata's words. Good morning, everyone. Today I want to uh, talk about Thich Nhat Hanh. Died two weeks ago. And I want to start with a, a short
1: poem of his. Peace is every step. The shining red
0: sun is my heart. Each flower smiles with me. How green, how fresh all that grows. How cool. The wind blows. Peace is every step. It turns the endless path to joy. So on this. Uh, crisp winter morning. When the sun is shining. And some of the winter flowers are blooming there's a. Beautiful yellow flower blooming right outside the abbot's office uh very surprising uh we can enjoy our walking enjoy our breathing uh, and enjoy the teachings that we receive from from Thich Nhat Hanh and uh from all our teachers and from from our own lives
1: so I, what i thought i would speak of today is just uh
0: what I feel like I've learned from Thich Nhat Hanh and what many as many of us have absorbed and uh, it may be that uh, when we get to the section where you can respond, you may have your own experiences to share. Uh-huh. So as you know, Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, who is affectionately referred to as Thai, which is the intimate uh, intimate way of addressing a teacher in the Vietnamese Buddhist tradition. He died two weeks ago in Vietnam at the age of 95. In 2014, he had uh, suffered a uh, brain hemorrhage, uh, which, in which he lost his uh, ability to speak. Uh, but he went through, I think, extensive rehab, and they did as much work as they could to uh, to bring him uh, into a, a peaceful place to live. Uh, and most of those years, uh, he lived at Tu Huay Temple uh, in in Hue in Vietnam, uh, and he was
1: surrounded by his disciples. Uh, monastic and lay. Uh, And
0: his death leads me to reflect on how deeply my practice and I think all of our practice was influenced by him over the last 40 years. I was looking, uh, I was looking through the shelves here in uh, the abbot's office, which was Sojin's office. And, you know, there's a there's a half shelf of Thich of Nhat Hanh books with uh, uh, bookmarks and, and places uh, flagged in them. Uh, and I think that what we find is that in many ways, the whole shape of Western uh, Buddhist practice has really been influenced by him in some in ways that we see, and some in ways that that we don't, we don't. maybe we don't remember exactly. Uh, so I'm going to try to uh, recall that, you know, bring to some awareness for myself. Uh, what I've uh, learned from him, what I borrowed from him. And just to say that, you know, this week, we we concluded uh, a four-week class on the three doors of liberation, and that in itself was a teaching that uh, Ty He didn't create it, but he brought it to our attention in a way that might not have uh, might not really have occurred to us. It's uh, it's not the most prominent. Uh, Teaching in the in the Theravada or Mahayana tradition. Uh, but it was a it was a live issue for him. And so he brought it to us. And uh, that certainly made it alive for me. I hope it made it alive for some of you. Um, and so I want to review some of this in the light of my own experience and also in light of some some principal teachings that I think we received from him. Now I was thinking there's so many different aspects of the teaching that he shared. Uh, uh, So if I had to reduce it to uh, one bumper sticker. Instead of uh, covering my entire bumper with verbiage, The the expression that that comes to me uh, of his is, uh, we are here to awaken from our illusion of separateness.
1: We are here to awaken from our illusion of separateness.
0: And I think that
1: uh,
0: certainly as we explore that illusion runs very deep in most people uh, and we have glimpses uh, whether brief or extended of uh, of that awakening of the recognition that that all is connected uh, or to come back to again an expression of Tigna Hans uh, of interbeing
1: So um, that's very broadly. Oh, look at this lovely little girl there in Nathan's arms. Um, uh, the breadth of, of Thai's teachings, um, they
0: cover Zen, mindfulness, peace,
1: love, anger ethics ecology community uh, all of these things uh, there's
0: there's books of them <laughs> there's books about all of them and actually uh, quite an industry of Thich Nhat on publishing and many of these books are really good I I put a, a short bibliography in the chat if you're not Familiar with with them. And these these are just actually, I think I haven't really read many of the books that Digna Han's written in the last 15 or 20 years, which is my deficiency, my shortcoming. But uh, the ones that I put are ones that were quite important to me in, in the foundational years of my practice. And I think that. For me, the the kind of my immersion in Zen uh, is contemporaneous with Thich Nhat Hanh's immersion as a teacher in the West. Uh, you know, he really uh, he became known to us in in Buddhist circles uh, in the in the 1980s. So 40 years ago. And it's it's quite amazing, 40 years ago, so that's, it's a long time. But at that point, the point at which he emerged as a teacher, he was already 55 years old. Uh, He had had a long life and a long practice, and a
1: long uh, experience of uh,
0: sort of adventures in the Dharma. And also of uh, challenges, defeats, and painful experiences. And I'm, I'm going to talk more about that. But my own encounters—I uh, had some—I had some opportunities to uh, to encounter him personally or semi personally uh, uh, in the probably about 1989 or 1990 i worked at his publishing house parallax press and so we were seeing the you know these incredible books that affected us all they were just they were just rolling off off the production line uh being peace and touching peace and the heart of understanding uh and uh the heart of the buddhist teachings old path white clouds these books just kept rolling out in the in the short time that i was there uh and i worked uh i worked there in a very menial position uh basically uh, answering correspondence and packing up books to ship and uh, meanwhile having some opportunity to uh to read them and to help support Parallax Press as they were as they were supporting uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. So in that, in the next period, uh, by 1991, I was uh, working at Buddhist Peace Fellowship, and that was uh, that was an opportunity again to. He w- he was a very strong supporter. Uh, and that was very it was really impressive to me because one of the things that had happened was that that uh Buddhist peace fellowship was very closely identified with Thich Nhat Hanh and there was a kind of merging of our our work uh, Thai's work and the work of Buddhist peace fellowship in the late 1980s and then there was a separation uh where uh, the bpf as an organization wanted to wanted to maintain an independent identity and not be merged or submerged into uh what was evolving as a as a dick not organization and this caused a lot of tensions which i won't go into but they weren't tensions with him and he continued to really support and contribute uh, writings and uh, teachings uh, for uh, Buddhist Peace Fellowship and invited us to help uh, produce talks in Berkeley and uh, days of mindfulness. Uh, Every two years, he would be uh he toured the West. And I'm sure that some of you uh attended these Berkeley Community Theater Talks. Did any of you? You, you see, yeah, I, I see a few people raised your hand.
1: So yes.
0: Yeah. So I had I I actually produced those and I'm I it kind of blurs in my memory, but I see that produced these talks in 91 93 95 97 99 and 2001 and they were that was a lot of work uh you know because they would like thirty five hundred or four thousand people coming i had never done anything like this but we worked very closely with uh with his people and with with our people and we put on these amazing events uh And I was very aware, he didn't really need us to do this. This was a gift that he was giving to Buddhist Peace Fellowship out of a feeling of support, which was based on the fact that Buddhist Peace Fellowship had been uh, one of the first uh, organizations that supported his teaching in the Buddhist communities in the West. So I was very grateful for that. Um in the course of that I had opportunities to meet with him and talk with him. Uh,
1: so I feel very fortunate in that. Uh, but I think that the bulk of my learning was not so much
0: from those encounters uh, as from his actual teachings and his books and I've been going back in the last few days and and looking at this again and I realized that uh how much of Thich Nhat Hanh's strength was forged in the at the intersection of incredible difficulty
1: and painful experience and uh, practice, really diligent, dedicated practice. Uh,
0: so kind of we forget about that. There's a you know, we convert uh, our our heroes to, as I said, to, to postage stamps you know, so like a postage stamp of, of Gandhi without looking at really the, all the difficulties in the anti-colonial struggle that he had. Uh, we have, we have turned Martin Luther King into a postage stamp. We've turned to, which is mind boggling to me, Malcolm X into a postage stamp. You know, we have this capacity for, frankly, homogenizing and making nice our, uh, our teachers and stripping away the sense of the real difficulty that they had. Um, so Thich Nhat Hanh's challenges, and first of all, he became
1: a monk. He was ordained at the age of 16. Uh, which was uh, 1942
0: or 43, uh, so that was in the middle of World War II. And that is growing up as a monastic uh, coincided with the, uh, with the war in Vietnam between the Vietnamese and the French in the 50s. And so he was really shaped by these anti colonial wars, and uh, civil war. By the time we get to the
1: 60s, you had uh, you had a split you had what what evolved
0: into uh, into the Vietnam War uh, between uh, Vietnam and United States, particularly between North Vietnam and also North Vietnam and South Vietnam, so we had a civil war and an anti-colonial war at the same time, and um, this was a very difficult time. Uh, I wanted to just read you something about uh, Vietnam's practice. Uh, in a piece where he, he talks to he says, mindfulness must be engaged. This is one of his core practices is mindfulness. Uh, mindfulness must be engaged. Once there is seeing, there must be acting. Otherwise, what is the use of seeing? We must be aware of the real problems of the world. Then we will know what to do and what not to do to be of help. And as context, he talks about uh, how this evolved in the in the war between uh, the anti-colonial war with France, he says, along with my monastic brothers and sisters, I had to decide what to do. Should we continue to practice in our monasteries? Or should we leave the meditation halls in order to help people who were suffering under the bombs. After careful reflection, we decided to do both to go out and help people and to do so in mindfulness. So the. Language is simple, but the examples. Are. uh, really, really difficult. Uh, in 1964, there was a great flood in central Vietnam, and thousands of lives were lost. And uh, the victims in the conflict zones, where there was where there was fighting, uh, were most vulnerable because no one could bring them aid. And so uh, Thich Nhat organized boats up the Tubon River. Uh, boats that ran between the lines
1: of fire to distribute aid in, uh, in that province. Uh, he wrote, he
0: encountered children bleeding from gunfire wounds, malnourished youth and fathers whose entire families had been swept away. In a gesture of solidarity Tai cut his finger and let
1: blood fall into the river for all who had perished. And it was in that time. That he also
0: formed the school for youth and social service. Uh, which again was a and at the same time he created something called the order of intervening, which was a, a new order in Vietnamese Buddhism. Uh, and in that context, he and his disciples went out into the countryside. And quite a number of them were murdered.
1: Uh, by one side or the other. And part of the challenge was that um, for not on the
0: the communists called him a tool of the imperialists, and the, and the uh, the West called him a communist, and he would not align. The side that he said that he took was the side of peace. So he was shaped by that. And he took this position of non-alignment. And then what happened was that in 1966,
1: he came to the United States. Uh, first, he came to uh, to advocate for peace. But when he
0: presented a, uh, well, let me just find this section here. In 1966, he met, he met peace activists here in the United States. And that was where he met Dr. King. And he flew to Washington and had a press conference and presented a five-point peace proposal for ending the war in Vietnam. Uh, and it included an immediate ceasefire and a schedule for, for US troop redo, re, re, withdrawal. And that day, he was publicly denounced by the government of Vietnam as a traitor. and. Uh, he was denied the right to return to Vietnam. So that's 1966. He did not return to Vietnam until 2005. He was not allowed back into the country. So he lost his country. There are other challenges that I could that I could name, but I think I want to get to what I think his core teachings have been for me. So, this teaching of mindfulness and the teaching that mindfulness must be engaged has been very powerful for me. Uh, there's a broadside that I have hanging over my desk with this excerpt. It's an excerpt from, from his book touching Peace. And that's the piece that I read to you about mindfulness must be engaged. Uh, I received that the first week that I was at
1: uh, Buddhist Peace Fellowship. Uh, And it was a very powerful teaching for me. And the mindfulness movement
0: as it is that we have, uh, that's so clear today, uh, in many ways, the term was really put into our general parlance by Thich Nhat Hanh, By his books, uh, his one of his early books, uh, The Miracle of Mindfulness.
1: And then all of his books have really hammered home the principle of mindfulness. And I learned it. I can't I think I learned it indirectly
0: uh, Aspects of it. For example, the teaching, the mindfulness teaching of a half smile. I don't know if people are familiar with that. I actually remember, I remember it was taught to us uh, in the Zendo by Yvonne Rand, uh, who was uh, also close with on I remember, and it, it struck me. And uh, I was skeptical, and you know that that is the practice of. So if you're in a difficult position or you're facing something that is anxiety-producing,
1: try it right now. Just sit there and put a half smile on your face and take three breaths. The interesting thing is that it seems to work from the outside in. You know,
0: often we're taught that our awakening has to be from the inside out. But what Tip Naran was showing us is like it
1: also can work the other way from the outside in. And uh, I've been using that for like almost 40 years. Uh,
0: If there's a difficult encounter that I'm preparing to uh, enter, or I'm going to a medical test, uh, or something of that sort, I'll sit, and I'll breathe. And I'll put on a half smile and something changes from that, from that very practice, it changes something internal, and that is the application of mindfulness. Uh, that's the application of, of dharma to our to our actual psychophysical or spiritual position. So I've used this. I've talked about this before. You know, I've used it when I was working in the prison uh, at FCI Dublin, uh, often the hardest thing to do was to, uh, was actually getting through the gate, uh, was dealing with whatever officer was at the gate in whatever hard day he or she was having. And so I would sit in my car and I would smile and I would breathe. And I would prepare myself mindfully by saying,
1: by asking, how do I want to encounter the next person I meet? Uh, and
0: just pause and do that. I find that enormously helpful, and
1: I I recommend it to you. Uh, uh, I'm going to just a, a few of, of Thais teachings to share. Um,
0: the other teaching that that came up very early in the reading was
1: uh, where he says suffering is not enough. So we're all familiar with
0: the with the uh, Four Noble Truths, which seems to imply that
1: uh in it's a misunderstanding but the implication is that life is boils down to suffering which is not what the truth means Uh, that suffering is a mark of our life yes that's true
0: but what Thich Nhat Hanh said is, this is not enough. There is suffering. And the course of his life, what he experienced was great, great suffering and you know, fierce emotions. But he also cultivated light and joy. And that's our job, not that that light and joy
1: is our permanent state of mind. But it coexists with suffering.
0: And actually, I think that the teaching we get from Thai teaching we got from Sojin and our ancestors is that the suffering is the characteristic that arises when we want to hold on to the joy or when we want to get rid of something that's unpleasant. So uh, just to recognize that life does not boil down
1: to suffering. That it's this great, um, as I was saying the other day at class,
0: uh, to cite a a teaching of Bernie Glassman's what we're charged with doing is cooking the supreme meal. cooking the meal out of all the ingredients of our life. And that includes the ones that are bitter and the ones that are sweet.
1: So suffering is not enough has been uh, really important teaching for me. And of course we have this principle of interbeing, which is a word that,
0: uh, it seems, uh, Tai coined the word at a retreat at Tassar, uh in the early 80s. That's where he first used this word, interbeing, as a way of articulating, uh, an accessible way of articulating uh, the buddhist term Paticha samupada or uh, uh dependent origination which is kind of abstract interbeing is is very alive uh interbeing implies that what we call the self
1: is made up of non-self elements uh, You know, as we were talking about a few weeks ago, you know. uh,
0: A bicycle is made up of non bicycle elements of rubber and gears and chains and metal pipes, all these things, if they're if they're lying on a heap in the ground, you wouldn't necessarily identify it as a bicycle, we put it all all together and. uh, For that moment we call it a bicycle or we put these parts together and we and we call it a car and you know in some parts of the country when the car dies you put it out in your front lawn and you turn it into a planter you know uh uh not so much in berkeley i don't think but this interbeing uh, is a way of discover of describing how all of reality is co-creating the things that we think have an existence.
1: Tai talked about engaged Buddhism and he
0: coined the word engaged Buddhism. Uh, He was using that term in the 1950s and i think that it was something you know he was very uh, he had a very uh, broad intellectual uh, view so he was reading everything and of course he was reading uh this this pra- this uh principle of engagement uh you certainly find uh Arising with the existentialist philosophers in France in the in the 40s and 50s, and he was fully aware of all of that. And so he talked about engaged Buddhism, and this was, and he was teaching this again from the early 50s, and he paid a price for it. Um, He was. uh, He would set up schools, he set up courses and the monastic powers that be would shut him down because he wasn't teaching the orthodoxy. He was teaching something that was really new, which was that how we see suffering is not just some experience that either we create for ourselves or we we inherit through some mysterious uh, transmission of karma from generation to generation, but that suffering was something as well that we shared across our cultures, our societies, our communities, our families, uh, and that the principle of engagement is that the suffering that one experiences in an individual sense is also uh, shared with those around us and the suffering of those around us affect us individually. So again, you have just as with the half smile, this principle that I that he was articulating was of working from simultaneously or from or by choice. You work from you can work from the inside out or the outside
1: in, both, there is no inside and outside. I think that's part of the teaching, again,
0: which is in complete consonance with the teaching that we receive in in Zen. I mean, he was a Zen teacher. Uh,
1: But one of the things that that I learned early on, the sense that you had
0: particularly early in the eighties. In the eighties what 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 Ty was doing was creating uh circles of practitioners in the West because he was here in the West. He was uh mostly low his his primary location was at Plum Village in France. Uh and he was mostly dealing with lay people, working with lay people there. And when we'd come on tour uh, to the States and to, other, and to Europe and to other places in the world, uh, he was building what became the, the, fa- the community of mindful living. He was building communities of lay practitioners who were committed to the practice, and they were also committed to social action and social change. Uh, and they didn't see those as separate. Uh, so that was really the emphasis, particularly in the early 80s. And what I saw, you saw him as this great beacon of engaged Buddhism, which initially I understood as social change. Gradually, as you really listen to particularly I learned this from listening to, from reading his books and listening to uh, lectures at the Berkeley Community Theater. He was, he would talk about families. He would talk about relationships. And the point that came through to me uh, very powerfully was, if we're gonna talk about engaged Buddhism,
1: it's not just how we stop the war. Uh, or various wars. It has to we we don't we can't start there what he
0: was what he was advocating was basically you start with your family. You start with and, and you start with building dynamics of peace love. Appreciation gratitude uh, among those you are close to. And what I realized, this is my extrapolation was. If you can't do that. You're really going to be spinning your wheels if you're talking about. Stopping the war or ending racism or some large, uh, very challenging and difficult social activity. It's like you build it from the ground up step by step. And you know we saw this we saw this again and again in Buddhist peace fellowship. you know we'd have we arguments within the staff, and it happens here in the Sangha. arguments or conflicts in the Sangha, if you can't deal with them at this very local level you can't make peace in that level then it's presumptuous and idle to think about doing it on some broader scale and so engage buddhism again not just did it work from the inside out and the outside in but it worked from the ground up it had to be based in the transformations of relationships. And for for Tai, what that what that took shape in was in the creation of communities. And so uh one of the things he said, you know, speaking of the future of Buddhism, uh, so we think that, you know, the uh one way of looking at my in mahayana buddhism uh uh we're we're awaiting the arrival of maitreya buddha the
1: future buddha and what thai said was the future buddha will be a sangha
0: and that i've taken very much to heart
1: and that's it's part of uh what I value about Berkeley Zen Center
0: is that what I value is uh, is our, at this point, our collective wisdom, our collective practice, that that is the manifestation of a multifaceted
1: Buddha. And we're all part of it. We're all adding our own style,
0: flavor, thought, Delusion and enlightenment to uh, the Buddha of the future. We're building the Buddha of the future, which is the Sangha. So, Tai did this by uh, first he did it by building uh, these communities of mindful living, which which are all over the place,
1: all over the world. And he also, at a certain point, uh, he began to build monastic community. Uh,
0: he began to see the possibility of building uh, monastic community, and he did that in, he built, he, he founded more centers in US, in Thailand, in France, in elsewhere, and, and in Vietnam, and ordaining monks and nuns. And when he ordained monks and nuns again, he did something that was radical. He he revised the liturgy
1: and revised the structure of relationships. You know, traditionally uh, these monastic structures are patriarchal, and
0: uh, traditionally the uh, the nuns ordination has a whole lot more rules than the monks ordination
1: and he revised that which is you know it doesn't to us
0: you know we can think you know everything's fungible uh you know it's we're not we're not bound to this but in a in a uh, a traditional uh monastic system Uh, most of them, it's very, very hard to change the rules. You know, the Dalai Lama has been talking about this for for 30 years, and, you know, he still hasn't been able to do it. He hasn't been able to create a situation where, where Tibetan nuns can actually even be ordained within the Tibetan tradition,
1: even though he wants to do it. I just did it. He wasn't afraid of he'd been bucking the powers that be all of his life and he wasn't afraid to do that. He when you encountered him, there's a way uh, and I'm going to close
0: in a few minutes. There's a way in which uh, the quotation from Richard Baker Richard Baker, who was the uh successor of uh suzuki roshi and uh he described tip not on early on uh, as a cross between a cloud a snail and a piece of heavy machinery uh a true religious presence and that's the way that's the way i think many of us encountered him You saw this, you know, this gentle, this seemingly gentle person, and everything he said was very peaceful and very nice, but he was like a bulldozer. He just moved in his own direction and didn't stop doing that, never stopped doing that, never stopped moving in a direction that he felt was right, and he had, uh, he had a kind of
1: a presence that Uh, I was thinking about it earlier today that um, based on his practice, based on the
0: formation that that his history had left him with, uh, he proceeded from a from a place of tremendous confidence of complete confidence in the dharma, uh, And you saw this when you, when you met him. Uh, when you saw, when you saw him on stage. Uh, it wasn't just, it wasn't just this gentleness, it was the.
1: This really formidable confidence and He
0: communicated that. He communicated that to people who met him. He communicated that to his students, just as uh, in many ways that Suzuki Rishi communicated this and Sojin communicated this and other teachers that we meet, uh, they have this complete confidence in the Dharma, not as an abstraction, but as something they have practiced, tested and used
1: and so they have they find it to be uh, completely reliable even in the most difficult circumstances
0: so i think i'm going to end there uh, and just uh, you know this this was a kind of wandering talk in a way but you may have some you may have some questions and you may have some memories or recollections of your own to share. So I will turn things back over to Blake to uh to call on people and uh we'll see what ensues.
2: Tenacity,
3: please. Um I'm speak. getting quite I'm getting quite a habit of going first. I apologize. Um <laughs> uh thank you for your talk. Uh Hosan, I uh, wanted to visit a question about creating uh, communities. So I live in Athens, Georgia now, um, and there is a not uh, insignificant queer and transgender population here. Um, It is not a specifically Buddhist community, but I intend to create to bring that spirit of practice to whatever community I engage with. My difficulty is that um, the prominence in this community is the discussion of suffering. Um, And I'm wondering if there is an engaged way to not dismiss that reality, but to expand the experience to something that's more fuller and and more whole for um, these people who I intend to care deeply about. Sure. Um, Well,
0: I think I'd be happy to talk with you more about this and and to point you towards more resources. But I think that this principle that suffering is not enough is, uh, is really important. And, you know, the example that we have of our teachers is uh, our teachers are all very intimate with suffering. And we see, they laugh a lot, you know, there's a lightness, there's a lightness, I think that uh, is also generated by the practice. And it's important to, to communicate that this is, it's not a goal, uh, but it's it's something, uh, it, it's something that happens with the practice. But uh, yeah, don't. We have to show that this practice is about liberation, and mm-hmm. liberation is about release and freedom. Uh, it's not about uh, just uh, how to be comfortable while you're wearing your chains of oppression. Uh, it's like, it's really shucking off the chains. So let's talk about that.
3: Okay. That's a good plan. Thank you. Okay.
0: Thank you.
2: Raghav, I invite you to unmute yourself.
4: Good morning. Huzan. Good morning, everyone.
1: Good morning, um,
4: um Huzan, you were talking about, um, how something shifted for you in terms of thinking about social work and, um, and, you know, working with families, you know, instead of looking outside, complete to wars within communities or countries, starting with families. You know, what occurred to me is... um, uh, um, Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, talked about, you know, in terms of, like, stopping the war within you know, which is why I think it's not different from like Sojin's teaching, for example, or, you know, Akimundi's teaching in the sense, you know, we start with the war within. um, And once we stop that, then we can see maybe like the, as far as the mind goes, there is no inside or outside. Um, And um, also another thing that came to my mind is, you know, Sojin used to talk about like, when talking about Maitreya, that, um, you know, we don't have to wait for any special Maitreya to show up, but we are, you know, we are, we are the ones who right. have to step up. Um, and, uh, 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 you know, you used to say, you know, we are doing Shakyamuni Buddha's practice. Um, and that was in line with what you said about Riknath which is, you know, Sangha, Sangha being, right. you know, the manifestation of Maitreya
0: yeah i think i think that's right i mean i think also the part of the of the formation this is i mean this is the interesting thing about uh their decision in the 60s uh to do both to to uh not to stop meditation right. but to maintain their meditation practice and from my feeling is just to say the meditation practice is the motor of compassion. That that this is what allows us uh, to sustain ourselves and to function. Uh, and, you know, I've come to it from a previous life as an activist. And
1: uh, that, on its own, that did not work. but to move,
0: this is why, you know, one of the things that Sojin did, which is actually really uh, kind of unique, when we leave the zendo, we don't turn towards the altar and bow and walk out. We just do a little shashu bow at the door and walk through because we are not leaving our meditation inside that room. We are taking that meditation outside into the world with us in perhaps a different form. And this is this is very much uh, This is the same as Thich Nhat saying peace is every step. It's every step, not every step in the Zendo It's every step in the world.
1: Right. So thank you.
2: Fulani's iPhone please uh, um unmute yourself and ask a question or make a statement.
5: No, I would just like to make a statement um I attended those uh when Titnot Han came to Berkeley at the community theater <clears throat> yeah. and I remember uh bringing tapes home and and having my whole family listen to them about the hugging meditations and smile and the flower. Oh, it's such a beautiful thing. Anyway, did the hugging meditation with my mm-hmm. aunts at a family reunion. And, you know, be, I was very present she was right there. That aunt died. Um, anyway, uh, when Titnahan died, I didn't even know my, my children had called and, I mean, well, they're adults now, called and told me I was so touched by that, that, my, that my, they had remembered. Um, It's beautiful. So that's all I wanted to say. And I work with a kid at work and he, my God, he's brilliant. But he's very, very left-brained and it's very challenging to be with him. But I just, I just stay, I'm just there, I'm just there for him. Oh, and so we met with, we meet with counselors. One day when we were meeting with the counselor and my supervisor, that kid, oh no, it was just him and I, and the counselor. And that kid, he's like twelve. He says something about tit not harm that my that whole room lit up. That room I was in, we were in, lit up green, like this this cosmic green light went all through the room, and and I was just stunned. Anyway, I just wanted to say that. So, thank you. And I remember I remember that you used to bring them here. Well, I mean, I remember you had something to do with uh, with him being here or something with <laughs> parallel, But I, it, I it, that's so no long ago. He brought. So, he
1: so brought you, us there. So
5: <laughs> <laughs> yes, he did. Oh, I know what I wanted to say. What I really wanted to say was, somebody had got. Speaking of community, someone had got somebody, some kids, some young people had got killed, got died through gun violence and we knew the family. I mean, I still know that family. And that was mentioned and Titna Han said something about it and they like blessed the family that was harmed and blessed the family that did the harm. And I still know these people. So I just wanted to say that, thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Polani. Thank You're you. You're welcome. So I see two more people in the queue and maybe that's, uh, that's what we'll take. Um, so maybe Preston
6: first. Hassan, I like what you were saying about, um, Buddhahood, enlightened activity, wisdom, beauty, whatever you want to call it, revealing itself in relationships between people and, um, in concerted efforts. Um, and I'm thinking about the stories I've been told about, um, social movements, um, and those stories oftentimes center on charismatic leaders. Um, so I think about like the story of the Montgomery, boy- the Montgomery bus boycotts and, um, how that story tends to be focused very much on Rosa Parks and um, her refusal to give up her seat. Um, And then, you know, later I learned that, um, you know, she had this whole organization of people around her and they had been strategizing about, you know, this particular action. And then the boycott itself, you know, that required all of these people in Montgomery to, to not take the bus to work and to give each other rides and to put up flyers all over the town. I'm about the boycott. And so, uh, I'm wondering, um, if you know anything about, um, Tich story as it relates to like the people around him that, uh, allowed him to, to be the person that he was.
1: Yes. Um, uh, I know quite a bit about it. And I, uh, he
0: was functioning uh he was pulling together like-minded people uh to create these uh organizations groups that would do the work uh and there were significant numbers of them and there were people who were inspirational to to him
1: uh and i'll say i Maybe hesitate to say this, but uh,
0: part of the challenge for me personally with Tipnahan was uh, what I felt was the the degree of idealization and objectification of of him. Uh, and so when we were doing these talks at at the Berkeley Community Theater, uh, we were fielding all the the calls for tickets and stuff at, at BPF, and it was. It was a kind of desperation that we experienced from people, you know, and getting tickets and making sure you get tickets and, oh, I've got to see Ticknut on. And it's like, uh, I understood that. And I had to say, you know, there's dozens of places of real practice around uh, just here, around Berkeley and Oakland. Where you can do this practice every day. You know, one person is not going to save you. Thich Nhat Hanh is not going to save you. But Thich Nhat Hanh, but I will say, Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings can save you. Uh, and, you know, so it's fine. I understood that. But uh, nothing functions. We, we have this tendency, as you're pointing out, to objectify. And uh, that's what happens when you when you turn somebody into a postage stamp, you know, you make it look like, uh, and this is what you make it look like, uh, the whole spectacle turns on this one person, whereas actually, it is a community that's doing this. And that is very much the case And Tignahan was never, uh, never reluctant. To share that information or that perspective. Uh, and what he did was he created community. He, you know, he 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 helped people organize into these communities of mindful living. He created monastic communities and where decision making was based on consensus, not on strict authority. So he was doing his best while he was a singular character and a very important figure, doing his best to uh, show people where their own authority and leadership could arise. And we need to do the same thing. So, Joel, I think you're going to be the last.
2: Thank you. <laughs> Wonderful. I want to ask about confidence. Uh, that confidence Chinut Han had and sojin had Suzuki Roshi complete confidence in the Dharma you said and that's wonderful and true and it was striking for me because I was expecting you to say complete confidence in himself and uh, confidence has been a problem for me and maybe that confusion of the self and the Dharma is part of that. So, um, if you can speak about the quality of confidence in Thich Nhat Hanh and yourself and all of us.
0: I don't think any of those people had complete confidence in themselves. I think they saw themselves, they saw their, their flaws and their shortcomings, as I do, for, i see my own. Uh, for Sojin, I know there were places that he uh was more confident, in places that he was less confident. If you, you know, if you hear uh something I didn't read, uh, I think Andrea uh referenced it last week Ryushin uh referenced it last week uh when Thich Nhat Hanh came in nineteen ninety one it was just after the Rodney King uh the Rodney King, uh, episodes, and he was really angry and he didn't want to come. And that was, you know, his, but his confidence, the Dharma informed his actions and he realized I have to come. So I think all these people, they recognize their shortcomings and areas where, uh, perhaps something was not complete. And this is something that we know from Dogen. When Dharma fills your body and mind, you realize that something is missing, but you have complete confidence. They had confidence in the Dharma. And that's where we should place our confidence.
2: Exactly, that's great. And they had confidence in some sense in themselves as embodying Dharma, including that they, they- they would do their best yeah
0: and, and was- try to make try and do their best to make sure that that was to the best of their understanding in line with the dharma
2: yeah and they did it
0: they did it yeah. you know and they were not perfect people you yeah. know but uh they might have been perfect teachers <laughs> so let's end
1: there thank you Close with the four vows. Beings
0: are numberless. I vow to awaken with them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it.